Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 47. So, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all good things. We are thankful for this word to us. How we pray that it might do us good. How we pray indeed that your word and spirit would work together upon us and bless us greatly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now to the final section in this chapter, Luke 23, verses 47 to 56. And this uh, this section has to do with the responses of the people to the death of Christ on the cross. The centurion, the crowd, Joseph of Arimathea, the women. And although it only says so explicitly for one of these, I think that the theme of that is the glory of God. It all centers on bringing God glory in these people in various ways doing what was in their hands to do at the moment. Now, I would say this is the theme of this little section, but I think I could also say it's the theme of the entirety of Scripture, every part of it. It's about the glory of God. I've so often mentioned uh, this, the wonderful statement in our confession having to do with Scripture, 1.6, but there's also 1.5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, meaning it works when you preach the gospel, people are saved, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all of its parts. We find that there is great unity in Scripture, unlike those who are unbelievers who, who feign that they don't see this unity. The consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the whole, meaning the point, the object of all of it, which is to give all glory to God. That's indeed what scripture is there. That's its scope. That's its, pur- its purpose. That it is, that's its end, to give glory to God. And so we're not surprised to find this highlighted in this section immediately Uh, after the death of Christ. Well, our title this morning is Glorifying God After the Cross. 
and one that I hope is of ongoing use to us because we live in the time after the cross, and it is given to us likewise to glorify God after the cross. So glorifying God after the cross with these four points, and we're going to deal with the people in order of how well they knew Christ. And that begins with the women. The women prepare. Joseph buries. The crowd are remorseful. The centurion confesses. We begin with the women, prepare, uh, the women prepare. In verse 49, all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's what we find them first doing because there isn't much that they could have done other than to watch. They were powerless before the, the, uh, the Roman government and the soldiers and they are watching but then in verse 40, 55, after, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. They had come first to observe the crucifixion and indeed to weep. And they now are following Joseph and his servants to see where they buried Christ. This had a few useful aspects to it. First of all, they were, as it were, the funeral party going to the graveside service. And it is right that such would happen. Next, it was independent testimony to the fact that he had been buried in this particular tomb. They saw his body being laid in there. And this is very useful as we know that it was necessary not only that Christ was risen, but that he was actually dead and buried. And these women provide testimony to that. And finally, then, the reason that they actually did it, which is so that they all know where to go when they get a chance to anoint the body, because that is already what is in their mind. They need to know which tomb to go to, to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph himself did what he could, as I I will mention next, but he was not able to have his body anointed because of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was coming fast upon them, and they only had uh, a, a few hours, in fact, to accomplish all before the Sabbath began. And so also for themselves, these women observe the Sabbath day. They rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. For the the time that they had, there's really nothing else they could do other than to observe and to follow and to see what was going on as they made preparations in their own mind. And then they rested. A reminder that God's commands and God's service do not contradict one another. I, I hope you understand what I'm saying there. Because sometimes we think God's command and serving God somehow are in conflict. But friends, they're just not. Uh, And there was no, and God is not protesting that the women are taking a break on the Sabbath according to the commandment. There was a pretty important situation of his own beloved son, his body, needing anointing. And yet they rested when they were told to. Friends, I hope that this comes to mind the next time that you think you have something so important on the Lord's day that you just have to do it. God in heaven was content that the body of his son remain unanointed in order that his people rested. Well, they rest and they make preparations in as much as they are able to do so in their mind, and also while they still had time in verse 56, they prepared spices and fragrant oils. And again, we might, you, you understand what they're going to do. They're going to 
anoint the body just as uh, was the Jewish custom to do so. Um, we might say that uh, they should have been preparing to have a party because they knew that he was going to be risen from the dead, just as he said he had prophesied that. You know, there's probably a fault in all of these things because we're sinners. And we're not going to find that any of these four responses were perfectly sinless. They all had their faults. The point was, what was the main thing in their hand to do at that moment? Did they do it or not? And these women did the right thing. Maybe they weren't fully expecting him to rise. But even for that brief amount of time that he was in the grave, it would have been right for them to have anointed his body. So they make these preparations. Now, we uh, have to understand that the anointing of the body was not like what happened with the, the Egyptians. The Egyptians were very superstitious, and they uh, were the first indeed to have extensive preparation and preservation of the body, uh, an embalming process that took a long time because they believed in some sort of immediate physical afterlife, and that's why they provided such elaborate tombs in the, the form of the pyramids and whatnot. That wasn't it. Rather, the women were preparing to do what was common for a Jewish funeral in that the body was laid to rest, uh, given honor, and not buried in a terrible condition, but in the best condition that they could. It's consistent with the idea of the bodily resurrection to come. We honor someone who has departed, and we understand that he is not immediately going to be raised from the dead, but that eventually he will. And so inasmuch as in our hands to do, we understand that there are things beyond our control and bodies will certainly decay. But given what we can do, we lay them to rest in good condition. And there's nothing superstitious or wrong about that. Well, I want to say again, the women in their preparations at this moment, though it may only consist of preparation and of observation, they did what was in their hands to do. And I think that God was glorified by that. You remember, of course, the, uh, Jesus' affirmation upon the anointing of his body with Mary in Mark 14.8. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. What a wonderful statement. Not this woman has done a thousand things. Not this woman has personally saved the world or even me this woman has done what she could to anoint my body and that testimony we have for all eternity to the glory of God and yes to the honor of that woman well the women prepared secondly Joseph buries now this one, we move from the, the women who knew Jesus so very well to one who knew the Lord a little bit less than that, and this is Joseph of Arimathea. We find him in verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Now that phrase, waiting for the kingdom of God, essentially means that he was a believer. In fact, in Matthew, that's exactly the, what we get. Now, when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. 
So he was, in fact, a believer. He was a disciple of Jesus. But on the other hand, the Gospel of John adds another piece of information, which is this. In John 19.38, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Well, so we don't find a perfect man. find a very prominent and important man, and we know that they face sometimes particular difficulties in coming to Christ and becoming believers. Uh, maybe they are particularly susceptible to uh, the fear of man and the great standing that they have in society. And he was not immune from it. So he was a disciple, but secretly. But friends, whatever his faults up until that moment, whatever his cowardice even, if we want to go as far as that, he did a brave thing that day. He summoned the courage to do something that I don't even know if his public disciples would have been willing to do. We know that some of his public disciples that had not feared to follow him up to this point deserted him when, when push came to shove. But here we find Joseph of Arimathea in verse 52 going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. Now what does that mean? Enemy of the state has just died at the order of this man. And you go and say, let me have his body so I can personally bury it. It means I'm identified with this man. I identify with this man and and his movement. And that was a dangerous and courageous thing to do, especially for a problem. Now, bad enough with the Roman government. What about the council? Because at least with Pilate, we knew that he was ambivalent. He didn't really want to do it. He didn't have anything personal against Jesus, but the council did. And he was raising his hand. Beforehand, he had just said, I, I do not consent to this. And that was good. You know, friends, sometimes we don't win everything, but merely by by not consenting to the deeds of others, whether in government, whether in our own governing bodies, whether at our work, in in whatever way, whatever that is wrong, we don't always win. God doesn't call us to always win. We just don't give our consent to those things that are wrong. And that's what Joseph did. But now he takes it a step further and publicly identifies himself as a disciple of Jesus. He had overcome his fear of them and was willing at this moment to do something very brave. And interestingly, after Jesus had died, very brave and powerful thing. And in verse 53, he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever laid before. And let me say that we know elsewhere he had done this. This was for himself. He was a rich man, and he had provided, he had hewn out this own tomb, not himself personally. You understand, in all the things where it says Joseph did it, his, he also had these servants that, that helped him do it. And he had made this wonderful tomb. It was a tomb of the rich, and it was a pure tomb. It was not defiled by any sinner that had been laid there, and that was necessary as part of it. And all of this was in fulfillment of a certain prophecy Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, meaning that the, that the Romans had brought him to Golgotha, where common criminals were just thrown out in a pile after they had been crucified. But no, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so he was laying, given perhaps even a kingly burial, 
in this tomb where no one had ever lain, hewn out of the rock, the very best that money could buy, provided by Joseph of Arimathea, a place that was prepared for himself, he gives instead to his Lord. Now, what can we say to all that? Friends, I would suggest that Joseph did everything that was in his hands to do at that point. I don't know what more he could have done. As I say, he didn't have enough time to anoint the body had he chosen to do so. But he did what was in his hands to do. He glorified God by giving the Son of God the best burial that he could. He glorified God by coming out of the closet as a Christian and boldly letting everyone know that he loved his Lord even in death and wanted to do all for him. In some sense you say, what good is it? He's already dead. Friends, the Lord thought much of that. And his scripture records his deeds for all eternity. And we know he wasn't going to stay dead. But he was glorified through the agency of this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Well, the women prepare. Joseph buries. And the next on the list is the Jewish crowd. Thirdly, the crowd are remorseful. Now, this crowd, they they were not disciples, not public disciples, not private disciples. But they did know something of Jesus because they had seen his deeds and heard his words and they knew the scriptures. They knew something about him. In verse 48, we see that the whole crowd who had come together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. Now, beloved, you know that this crowd more than likely consisted of the very same people who had been shouting, crucify, crucify. What was in their hands to do? Beforehand, their hands were to say, no, please send us Jesus. We demand you give us Jesus, this innocent man. Crucify Barabbas, the sinner. But they didn't. They didn't personally make any decision, but they were able to shout And they used their voices and the power that was in their voices, their influence that they had, to have Jesus murdered. But now, now they're beating their breasts. We don't do that as much. But you understand that doing this for them was a sign of remorse and regret. They had a level of understanding that something bad had happened and something that was to be regretted. Again, the circumstances, just like with the centurion. He had seen what had happened. The crowd, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts. They saw the darkness. They, saw the earthquake. they heard the earthquake. They felt the earthquake. And these signs had accompanied the death of the Son of God, and they knew not only that God's wrath, yes, was being poured out on him. They knew that, but they certainly knew, if nothing else, that this was not something pleasing in the sight of God that they had put him to death. This was no ordinary man. This was an innocent man. And so they beat their breasts. Now that doesn't sound like much. I mean, of all the things that were done that day, that seems the least. It did nothing, really. But I want to say that even that much was to the glory of God. Because they did not walk away that day proud in their defiance, proud in their rebellion, Reveling in the fact that they had succeeded in having Christ crucified, they walked away remorseful. And friends, even that much is to the glory of God. 
They were humbled and their mind had been changed. And you know that any true repentance, I don't know their hearts. I suspect that some of those, actually this was the first step along the road to Acts chapter 2, in which thousands of that crowd would actually repent and believe in the, the Lord Jesus Christ. But any degree of true repentance from sin glorifies God. All the things that we can do, in fact, it may seem so ineffectual, so pointless. But God is glorified when we consider in our hearts the things that we've done. We beat our breasts and say, this is, it is a regret to me that ever I did such a thing. Well, let me say at the moment, unfortunately, it does not benefit them. All of these things have a certain mixture. And the mixture here is it didn't benefit them because they did nothing else at the moment. They simply returned to what they were doing. Didn't come to faith and they missed a great opportunity to fully repent and believe. We hope for many of them they took the opportunity in Acts chapter 2. But for the moment... This crowd's remorse doesn't extend to action. Well, the women prepare. Joseph buries. The crowds are remorseful. Fourthly and finally, the centurion confesses. Verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Here now we have this explicit statement that he glorified God, and then the specification of how he did it. He didn't glorify God on one hand and two minutes later say something in in terms of he was a righteous man. The saying that he was a righteous man was the glorifying of God. Certainly this was a righteous man. He confessed with his lips. He affirmed in his heart what God had said about his own son. Truly this was a righteous, innocent man. Now again, what was the prompt? What brought him to that? What Christ said directly as he spoke from the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It is finished. Into your hands I commit your spirit. What he had observed of him in his righteous conduct, nothing more powerful than a man who is dying, we get to see. That's why the the people in previous days always wanted to know the conduct of someone as they lay dying. We don't seem to care much, but they did. They wanted to know if what they confessed with their lips during their life would hold true in their final moments. And it certainly held true with the Lord Jesus Christ. He observed that. He had, a, had the best seat in the house to observe that. And also what preceded his death, Pilate's assertion of his innocence. I'm sure he hadn't heard that before. Pilate protesting more than once that the man he's about to have crucified is, is innocent of all charges. He saw it on this account. And then mainly, mainly I think what had accompanied his death in the darkness. A sign of God's disapproval on these proceedings. And he saw these things and he said, surely I put this man to death. I, I know that. But this was a righteous man. And God was glorified in it. God was glorified greatly. 
You know, Matthew 27, verse 54, gives us a little bit more of that. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They feared greatly. You know, these things are the same. Surely this was a righteous man and truly this was the Son of God. They amount to the same. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And if he was a righteous man, then it must be accepted as true. That's the old liar, lunatic Lord thing. You cannot say that Jesus is a righteous man and also say that he was wrong about his claims of being the Christ. If he says and believes truly that he is the, the incarnate Son, eternal Son of, of God given, made to human and was the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews in truth, and then also said that he was perfectly righteous? No, it's not a possibility. If you say he was righteous, then you're also saying that he was the Son of God. And that's what this man had said. And God was glorified in it. This confession was to glorify God. This is the effect of it, glorifying God. And friends, that's one of the great themes I mentioned of all scripture, but of particularly of Luke. We said it a long time ago, maybe in, with regard to the shepherds. you remember how they glorified God? In Luke 2.20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Or in Luke 5, they uh, rose up before them, took what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God. People who witnessed Jesus raising someone from the dead glorified God in Luke 7. He who was dead sat up and began to speak. And fear came upon them all and they glorified God. The crippled woman glorified God when Christ healed her in Luke 13, 13. She was made straight and glorified God. And what about that one leper? You remember him in, in Luke 17, 50, uh, 15. The, the other nine just went their way, but the one leper returned. When he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. And finally, in chapter 18, and immediately he received his sight, this blind man, and followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. Friends, if the dead man is a paralyzed man, if the crippled woman, if the, the blind and the dead and the shepherds at his birth glorified God, how wrong would it have been for no one to glorify God as he completed the great work which the Father had given him to do, the great work of redemption. He said, Tadalestai, his greatest work now being done, somebody needed to glorify him. And it was a Gentile. Isn't that interesting? Another great theme in the Gospel of Luke and something we'll see again, Lord willing, soon enough in, in, in Acts. It was a Gentile who bore this glory to God. Friends, you don't have to be a Jew to glorify God. You don't have to be a Jew to be a believer. The way is open. The veil is torn. It was a centurion. Yes, an officer of the Roman military who glorified God at this occasion. Well, what do we say to all these things? Um, I, I mentioned that in all these cases, there's probably something more they could have 
maybe there's some fault in it, but in general terms, the main thing that was in their hand for them to do at that moment, they did. And it was to the glory of God. What about us? We also live after the cross. They glorified God in the immediate aftermath of the cross, but we're still living in the aftermath of the cross. What about us? Well, I say we have three ways to glorify God come to mind. First of all, you ought to take this opportunity to believe. If you've never believed before, covenant child, guests, someone listening online, take this opportunity to believe. Don't be like that crowd who beat their breast and then did nothing and just returned to their ordinary life. You understand that one of Satan's most successful and important lies, all he does is lie, that he's, he trades in lies. That is how he exercises his influence over the world. He makes these lies and he propagates them. But one of his most successful lies is that, that you can put off believing indefinitely. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like such a terrible thing. Oh, it is. Uh, because I have met very few, well, I met a few, but, you know, you often meet those who have been in some way, they've heard the gospel, they understand it to some extent, and very few of them actually say, I will never believe this. It's relatively few that have said, I will never, ever, ever believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard many that say, not now, not today, not right at this moment, I have other things I need to do. Maybe talk to me next year. Not now. And in people's hearts, they say, if this were next month, when I don't have things to do, or when I've gotten myself a little bit cleaner, and I don't have so much sin that's immediately on my mind, or I'm, I'm not in some terrible trial and difficulty, then maybe I would believe. But friends, maybe that trial is there so you'll believe. Maybe... The, the busyness and, and stress is there so that you'll believe. And mainly, you have no idea if you're ever going to be in this place again. The crowd was huge. I don't know exactly how many people, but I don't think that all of them ended up being believers in Acts chapter 2. I think that there was a, a circle this big of the crowd that was there who shouted, crucify, crucify. And a subset of that was there, had the opportunity in Acts to believe and took that opportunity. And what about those others? Well, for all we know, they never had another opportunity. You would glorify God greatly by taking the one opportunity before you to believe. There might not be anything else that you can do at this point. But that would be the one thing that would bring God the greatest glory for you to repent and believe. And you know what else I think of different groups of people? I mentioned the, the crowd and those who would later believe. Those are two different groups. There, wasn't, there was nothing different in themselves. God was the one who made the distinction between them in the end. But then I think about those two thieves. You know, at that moment we're talking about things after the cross. Do you know, do you know where those two thieves were by that point? One of those thieves was already in paradise just like Jesus had said. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow. Already. Today. And the other one? What does that mean? Where was he? He was already in hell. Already in hell by that moment. No further opportunity whatsoever. 
He had his one opportunity. There was no tomorrow for him. That day, he would be with the condemned, unrepentant sinners in hell. Take this opportunity to believe. It's the best thing you could possibly do to glorify God. Secondly, you ought to grow in your confession. I've mentioned that the centurion glorified God by proclaiming, surely this is a righteous man. That was a wonderful thing to do. The very man who is responsible for his execution to say, this was a righteous man. Well, it was true. Jesus was innocent. He never committed any sin whatsoever. But that was not all that could be said. That was not all that was to be known about the Lord Jesus Christ. Are there other attributes, other truths to be known about the Lord Jesus? Oh, yes, there are. It's a long list. The more you know, the more you understand that you don't know the half of it. And if you know as much as Paul, you begin to say, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. He hasn't come to the end of that depth. He never did in this life, and neither will any of us. And every day, friends, there is something new to learn about the triune God, something new to learn about Christ, something new to confess. I mean, we sometimes approach our daily Bible readings, our, our devotions, as if the only point of them is to be of use to us. Well, that's true. If you don't do it, you're going to be uh, like someone who doesn't eat all week. But friends, it's there to bring glory to God as well. This whole big book, do you know it? Every day you read it and every day you find out something more. The, the attributes, the names, the titles, the actions, the works of God. And you glorify God when you confess in your heart and maybe with your lips as you speak to others, your own family, those you meet, of the glorious things of God. You can say much more than that, that centurion. You say, yes, he's a righteous man, but you know some other things as well. You know that he's a, a gracious man. You know that he's a holy man. You know that he's an all-powerful God-man. And all the other things that could be known or said. You glorify God as you do this important work, and we all together do this important work of growing in our confession. We glorify God by knowing more and declaring more about him. Thirdly, and finally, I say we glorify God by doing what is in our hands to do. That's really, I guess, the main point of the sermon. That's certainly the example that we see. These people, they all had something that they could do at that moment, and they just did it. Beloved, God has never and will never demand for you to do something that is physically impossible. He only expects that when the opportunity comes, that we do what is in our hands to do to bring him glory. Some of those things seem pretty trivial. Just opening your mouth when the opportunity comes. Even preparing in, in your heart and with your hands for some, other, for some future good work sometimes. If we have in our hands ready something that is of use and we can bring glory to God, we can be, let me say this, if we have something in our hands, do you know who put it there? God did. If you have something in your hands ready to do, you know for certain that God put it there for his own glory. He didn't put it there for, for Baal's glory. He didn't put it there for Satan's glory. And he certainly didn't put it there for your own glory. He shares his glory with no one. Whatever you have in your hands, 
in terms of resources, in terms of your talent, in terms of your opportunities. It's there for the glory of God. And he expects you to use it to that. The women had a service they could offer. The day the opportunity came for them to use it to the glory of God. Joseph had this nice tomb. He probably did intend for it, frankly, to be for his own glory. He had the nicest tomb in town. I'm sure everyone else knew it. The day and the opportunity came for him to use it to the glory of the living God, and he took it. Now, there's not every day that we can do these things directly for the incarnate Son of God. In fact, those days are gone. Jesus is no longer here. He is risen. But every day there are opportunities to serve Christians who are in union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says he's not going to forget a single thing done for them. Every day there are opportunities to glorify God by doing what he's called us to do in our vocations to glorify God. Not if they're for ourselves. If we're making tombs for our own glory, then then actually, no, we've wasted that. But whatever we we have and whatever opportunities are given, day by day we seek to do these things particularly for the glory of God. Do what is in your hands the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have not always done all that was in our hands to do. So many of our regrets have to do with precisely that. And Lord, we beat our breasts in all the ways that we have sought our own glory, in all the ways that we have turned aside from opportunities to serve your people when we could have to open our mouths and confess that which was true when we might have. Lord, how we pray that you would enable us to do what the crowd didn't do on that day, to fully repent of all of our past sins of every kind, and to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to glorify him in our hearts and on our lips, and yes, with our hands and feet. How we pray, Lord God, that you would For your own sake, make us to be a singularly God-glorifying people whose only thought night and day is, what do I have by which I might glorify God? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.